Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15. I will give a little teaser. We are going this summer to someplace near where Inu grew up. So there is a little, little lap. Wait till next week for all the trips. But John chapter 15, we are wrapping up our series on the I Am's and looking at how Jesus defines himself. Because if you're going to have a relationship with someone, you need to let them explain who they are to you. And so what does Jesus say? Not what does the politician, not what does social media, what does your latest TikTok video say about Jesus? But what did he say about himself? And what does that tell us? Not just about him, although, of course, he is the central hero. We believe he is the hero of the human story. But not just that, but because he is the center of that story, learning about who he is tells us a lot about who we are as a result. In consequence to who he is, we discover something about our humanity and our nature and who we are as a result. So I forgot to print out my notes today, so I'm using my laptop here. Hopefully this will work okay. But... John chapter 15, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you are going to bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. No greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you my friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. This is my command. Love each other. Okay, everybody got all that? Got it? Good. Clear as mud, right? Like I like to say, staff always tease me. Like, you're such a country boy. But, but, I have all these little sayings. But my, the, the concept here that Jesus is getting at, the concept here that Jesus is getting at as we're wrapping up this series is that, you know, really this passage in many ways is one of the most, like, hope-filled and frustrating passages, I think, that Jesus t talked about in John. Like, it is one of the most, like, it fills us with so much hope. We love the idea that, that God is abiding with us, 
right? That he's near us, that he's never far from us, that in our trials and our challenges and our difficulties, in those struggles and those midterms that I know a number of you guys just walked out of and some of you are walking back into after this, like all of those things that you're going, yeah, yeah, Seth, I see you. But in the midst of all of those things, yeah, he's still here, praise God. But in the midst of, you know, we love the idea that he's abiding with us. But that idea that he's calling us to abide to reside, to be with him, that, that is one of the more frustrating things. So I'm like, man, I got Calc 3 homework. How can I abide with Jesus? Right? Like, how do I abide in the midst of all of the challenges and temptations and all the distractions in my life? His abiding with me, I like that. But my abiding with him, that's frustrating. You know, the vine, it can't just, like, just be like, oh, the vine and the branches. The branch can't say, hey, Vine, you abide, you know, you can be part of my branch. It's like, no, the branch has to be part of the vine. And yet we oftentimes want it that way. We want me to be the vine and Jesus to be the branch. I want, it, I want him to be added into my life, kind of a component, an addition to. But he says, no, 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 I am the vine. You are the branches, right? You've got to add it. The vine and the branches. The branch can't just like leave, like, hey, I'll come out, you know, outpost Wednesday nights. I'll come back, get a little little spiritual sustenance and move on. No, the, the, the vine has to abide continuously, constantly, without, without ceasing. And so what does that look like for us in our faith as in the midst of like relationships and, and you know, intramural sports and midterms and all of the rest that comes in this season of life? What does it look like to abide with Jesus? And so we're going to look at just a couple of thoughts here tonight. Um, one of them, one of them is this idea that when Jesus says abide, he's talking a lot about love here. So we hear this a lot. Actually, that's one of the core themes that you'll see in the vine and the branches is love. Love God, you know, abide with me because I, you know, abide in my love. And so, and so when Jesus talks about abiding, he's often talking about abiding in my love. And and Mark chapter 12 has this really interesting conversation where Jesus is talking to these, these groups of people and, and this guy asks him, he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? We got a lot of rules here. We got a lot of do's. We got a lot of don'ts. Like what's, what's, the, what's at the center of all this? And Jesus responds with what was called the Shema, which is from Deuteronomy 6. It's, I believe, the most quoted scripture verse by scripture, right? So scripture saw this scripture verse as really important. And we should too. But he says it this way. He says, Jesus replied, this is the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And so what Jesus asks is like, okay, how do you abide in my love? Well, love me in your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus actually added mind but, you know, when you're God, you can add to Scripture, right? So he took the Shema, and he, and he said, basically, with all of your being, with all of who you are. But I thought, you know, that might be kind of an interesting way tonight with our time here to talk about what does it look like to abide in these different ways. Because the different parts of who we are kind of express that abiding differently. And so I want to look at how do we abide in our heart, in our soul, in our strength, in our mind. So the first one... Abide in Jesus' love with our heart. Are you a prodigal or find your value in Christ? And so sometimes we say it this way 
where you are looking for validation, you're going to find your value. And where you find your value will shape your identity. You know, we're in a world right now that's really wrestling with identity. We're, I've just been talking about this even just this week with a number of people. And, and you guys have heard me kind of talk about this in different ways at different times. But I just want to double down just for a second because it's such a, a prevalent concept in our world right now. Like, you guys, you know, there's all kinds of, of kind of tensions, culture wars. There's, there's political ideologies. And so, there, you know, sometimes people are... Re- wrapping up their identity around the political and the future of this world, you know, and, and all of that. Sometimes it's through, like, the sexual ethic and the conversation about the Christian sexual ethic and the world's sexual ethic and, like, the identity. We're wrapping our identities around that. Or, or there's all kinds, whether that's your career or that relationship, but we're wrapping up our identities in these, all these different things because what we're doing is we're saying, hey, I need to be valuable. I need to find value. I need to be significant, have substance, have, have something about me that means I, I am worthy of, of life, of existence, of happiness, of joy, of peace. Like what, what gives me that sense of value? And I'm going to find it in what I, where I find my validation. And if I find my validation in these, in these other things, in this worldly in these worldly ways, then I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to create an identity that, that reinforces that way of thinking, that reinforces that identity, right? And so it's, it's this tension that we're constantly wrestling with because in your world, there's all kinds of people saying, hey, this is, this is where you're going to find life. This is where you're going to find life. Put it in this identity. Put it in that identity. And, and oftentimes, you can be kind of left in your culture just like, what does it even look like? What does this mean? To follow Jesus. How do I abide in his love? How do I abide with him? Well, Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 15. It's called the story of the prodigal son. I actually heard one, one commentator actually made, made the, the statement that this was maybe the greatest short story in history. A literary critic had argued this is the greatest short story in history. And I'm not going to read it, but the, the point of the story is Jesus tells a story of this young man who basically goes up to his dad and says, hey, I wish you were dead. So if you were dead, I would at least get the money. And so why don't you just give me your money, and I'm going to go on my way. And so his father says, okay, he gives him his inheritance. And the young man goes, and, and sa- it says that he went and uh, basically squandered that wealth. He lived wild, wildly. And... After a while, he lost it all. He squandered it all very hedonistically, just kind of living for the moment, living for what felt good in the moment. Who cares about the future or anything? He just, he just squandered it all. And, and he finally realizes he's living with the pigs. He's got nothing. He's like, I, even, my, even my dad's servants were better than this. And so he goes back up to his dad and says, hey, could I, could I just be a servant back in your home? And the dad, it says, is looking for him, waiting for him, actually looking out on the horizon, just waiting for his son to come back, and is so excited when he sees him. And he throws this big party. But, but you know what prodigal means? A lot of times people think prodigal means like lost. Like, oh, my son, you know, he, was, he walked away from God, but now he's come back. And, and that, is, that can have an aspect of what that story is talking about, but actually it's not about that story. That's not what that word means, prodigal. Prodigal means extravagant waste. Prodigal means extravagant, extravagantly wasteful. When in verse 13 of John 15 it says that the prodigal 
lived wild living. He was doing, you know, he was basically living for all of these other things. It was this extravagant waste that is what was the accusation of the prodigal, that he was living extravagantly, but not that he was living extravagantly unto itself. You know, if you guys remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus is the bread of life, he says, I, I want you to have life abundantly, and that word is this like extreme abundance, like over and above anything you can imagine. Like God wants you to live an abundant life. The question is, where are you finding that life? And for the prodigal, he was looking, for all the, looking to all these other things. He was living extravagantly, but it was wasteful extravagance. And so he comes back, and then there's this older brother. And this older brother says, hey, you never threw a party for me. And the dad's like, yeah, but in the last verse, I'll read this. It says in verse 31, and he said to him, son, talking to the oldest son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. So, so here's the interesting thing about the older brother. The commentators kind of highlighted that the story isn't just about this young brother, this prodigal. It's also about the older brother because he is faithful, but he's not extravagant in his faithfulness. Right? So you have these two contrasting ideas here. You've got one brother that is extravagantly wasteful and the other one that is reservedly faithful. And neither have it right. Neither brother had gotten it right. What Jesus is calling us to is extravagant faithfulness. Like, are you, do you find your fulfillment? Do you find your abiding? Do you find abiding in the love of Christ fulfilling, life-giving? Is that the thing that you're looking to? Because we have a lot of Christians that are prodigal Christians. It's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I really find my extravagance is in social media. My extravagance is in the video game. My extravagance is in that relationship that I'm looking for fulfillment and validation and value coming from that, right? Like we have all these other things, but so often like Jesus, God, faith, we use that as like, we're like that older brother so often. We're like that reservedly faithful. Yes, I come to Outpost on Wednesday night. Yes, I'll, you know, do whatever, give to my church. I'll, I'll support, you know, the missions thing. Like, yeah, I, but there's, there's no life in it. There's no joy in it. And so we find our extravagance in other things, in other aspirations, in other places. But Jesus says, hey, I want you to have extravagance, but, but I'm that place. I'm that place of life. Would you abide in my love? And so abiding in God's love, what does that look like? What does that look like? One of the things that we can look at um, is that it's not the bad things that oftentimes trip us up. It's the good things in our life. It's the good things that are just not consecrated to the Lord. Like, is your, is your school, never hear us say like, oh, school is bad, right? Just because a lot of students make school their idol. We're not saying, hey, you know, education is a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's a really good thing. You should be grateful that you have that privilege. That is like the, you know, blessing of the Lord. Like the prodigal got his, his wealth from his dad. You have a education from the West, which is like, what, 1% of the world ever gets a chance to do what you're doing right now? Yeah, it's a good thing, but if it becomes the extravagance of your life, if it becomes the extravagance of your heart, it becomes an idol to the thing where you're really finding life. It could be consecrated or it could become the distraction 
that relationship, yeah, relationships are great. I love, you know, every summer we're doing weddings, officiating weddings. We're always a part of weddings. We love that. We were excited for people to have those things, and it's awesome. It's fun. But it's not about, oh, this is where I'm going to find my fulfillment now because I found a spouse. It's through the fulfillment of your faith that you find that the spouse actually is a place of expressing that joy in the Lord with each other and that mission in your life. It's, it's the expression of that faith where you find the outlet of that extravagance, not the location where you're going to derive it from. And so one thing here is when people ask, like, well, how do we, how do we love God in our heart? And I would just say one thing is grow your wonder. Grow your wonder. There's this, this idea of meditation in the Bible. It's a little different than like this Eastern mysticism that we're used to around here, which is largely based on emptying myself. A lot of times, you know, Scripture will say that too. You've got to kind of empty the bad stuff. But meditation is about filling up. In Christian terms, it's, it's filling you up with, with God, with his presence, with his truth, with his life. It's, it's filling up in place of what was there. I know, this, I know this pastor who, he's passed on now, but I remember him talking and he said, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I just start, I just say, God, I love you. But it doesn't often stick the first time, so I say it again, God, I love you. But then it really doesn't stick still, so I keep saying it, God, I love you. And he says, some days I have to say it about 70 times before it really starts to penetrate into my heart. You know, it's different. there's a difference between knowing something and believing it. There's a difference between knowing something is true Right, like I grew up, I grew up with a fear of like deep water. Right, I knew when I was like at the at the city pool, and there was like a a, a person at the bottom of like the, of the diving pool when we were kids. Like they were going to catch me. I knew I was going to be fine. There was no intellectual question: Am I going to be fine? Yes. Was my heart full of fear? Oh, I couldn't even do it. I oftentimes didn't even jump off the diving board. Why? Because what I knew was not the same as what I believed. What I felt, what I felt in my heart, because what was, what was filling my mind, what I was meditating on was the fear. And that was what was the reality that I lived in. Even if I knew that what I was meditating on was not really true. Little kid fears, right? But, but are you meditating on the truth of God? There's this guy, Brother Lawrence. He wrote this book called Practicing the Presence. It's a great book. But he, he wrote, he said, We must know before we can love. In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall then also think of him often. For our heart will be our treasure. For our heart will be with our treasure. That what he is getting at, he was just this lowly cook. He was this friend, like, I think he was maybe Franciscan. But he was this monk. He would, he would do dishes at the, at the monastery. But he found that he, he could, in everything, whatever he was doing, he could do it as if he was doing it to Jesus. He was doing it for Jesus. And as he learned to do that, he found that everything became worshipped to God. Everything became a place of connection to God. Everything, he never had to like separate from God, even in the lowly things of life. But he learned to meditate on the things of God, and he found in that that his treasure was in that place with God. The other thing is just remember that we need each other. Community, if we're going to abide in the love of Jesus, we need to abide in the community of God. Jesus called us to each other. Hey, sacrifice for each other. Serve each other. Love each other. Minister to each other. Like, I remember this, 
this old leader of mine in Chi Alpha, he said one time, he said, hey, you know, I've been a Christian too long now that the, the mystery, the wonder of my salvation is, is sometimes lost on me. He said, I need those young Christians in my life because the wonder of, of them being a child of God is so awe-inspiring that when I see it in their eyes, I'm reminded of my own passion for Jesus. Like, we need each other. We need, the younger ones need the older ones that know the maturity, and the older ones in their maturity need the passion of that younger one. We need each other. The community serves each other. All right, keep going. Abiding in Jesus' love with our soul. This one will be a little quicker here, but do you know abiding when you're not abiding? You are more than just physical. This gets a little, a little theology, a little basic theology, but, but do you realize that in the biblical narrative, you're more than just a physical, corporeal being. That there is something in you that is, when Jesus, or when God, Jesus was there, but in Genesis, when God made mankind, he breathed into them, and he made them in his image. Now, if, if God made us in his image, he wasn't talking about this physical body, like God is somehow a physical being. He was talking about something deeper, truer, something within you that is eternal, is spirit. And and so there's this idea in Scripture that, hey, yes, you are physical. You are, as some people like to say, animal and angel, that you are both material and immaterial. God made you in his image. So there's this dichotomy that is within you, that you are, that there's two aspects. Some people like to talk about it kind of in three ways, you know, like body, soul, spirit, whatever. But the, but the basic idea is, is that there is a physical part of you and that there is a spiritual part of you. And, and there's a part where even when the physical, even when you're doing that Calc 2 homework and you're freaking out because, oh, man, I haven't studied nearly enough and I spent way too much time, you know, doing whatever you shouldn't have been doing, you know, instead of being at the library. I heard that somewhere on campus. But, but old joke, still funny. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but that even, in, even when my body is still wrestling with, like, what is going, like, you know, I'm, I'm focused, something in me can still be abiding in the presence of God. There is something, there is a spiritual man in us that is still able to abide with, with God. Ephesians 6, 18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keeps, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul's just kind of saying, hey, like, there is this thing like praying at all times, like in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, in the presence of God. There is this continual kind of prayer that we just, we don't have to like necessarily just stop or end. He would say it in 1 Thessalonians 5, he would talk about pray without ceasing. This idea of like, well, how do I pray without ceasing? That's why oftentimes we feel guilty. It's like, oh, I, I don't you know, pray even that much. But there is this place where we learn to like press into the presence of God. And we begin to learn to abide in his love, in his presence, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I remember when I was a young man, I really loved Jesus when I went to college, uh, or right out of high school, I should say. And yet I didn't really know how to share my faith. I didn't really know how to be expressive about my faith. And so I, had, I joined this ministry called YWAM. It was Youth with a Mission. And I spent like six months with these, with these guys. And they, and they had me uh, at a base in Denver, outside of Denver in Aurora, for like three months. And then I went over to Africa for three more. Well, in that time, I really felt like I was, I just could sense the Lord really trying to push me into like sharing my faith, talking with friends, 
And oftentimes, I didn't feel like the Lord had given me, like, a word for somebody. I was always so scared. I'm like, no, God, I'm not into that. I can't do that. That's just, no, that's not me. That's not for me. And God's like, no, no, come on. Because my mind is like, that makes no sense. That's silly. I'm not going to do that. I'm so full of fear. My heart is full of fear. My mind is like, no, that doesn't make sense. But my spirit, there was something in the, in the Holy Spirit's communing. He's like, no, I'm trying to use you. Just let me use you. I'm like, no. Until one night, we had, there was like 20 of us that lived in this one big kind of barracks room. And, and we were just on bunk beds. And I, was, I went to bed. I just was crashed out. But like four or five guys got together at the base of my bed, just just kind of in the open space by the front door. They just got together to pray before they went to bed. Like, no big deal. Right? We're in this, like, youth missions organization. Lots of prayers happening. Right? So they're, so they're just like, let's just pray, and then we're going to go to bed. I'm out. Like, you know, I'm, I'm fast asleep. And so I actually heard about this secondhand. I, I have no memory of this. Um, but they just prayed, and they said amen. And as soon as they said amen, I sat up put my hands in the air, and I just began to pray over this one guy that was right below my bed. And I began to pray really specific, like there's, you know, there's, the enemy's attacking him in this way, and he's going through this, and he's experiencing this, and I'm praying, like, God, be with him, help him, minister to him in this situation. And everybody's like, wow, look at Nate, he's like, out of his mind, what's happening? Is he even awake? Like, no, he's not even awake. What is happening right now? They're like, like this guy's a freak. But, but they were like so freaked out by it. They're like, what is going on? And as soon as I got done, I laid my hands down, I laid back down, and I was out like nothing had ever happened. So the next morning, the guys walked up to me. Hey, Nate, you remember anything about last night? What? What do you guys, what, what happened? You don't remember? Uh, no, What? So they started calling me the sleeping prophet. You know, you had the weeping prophet in the Bible. I was a sleeping prophet. Here was the thing. Everybody thought, dude, this is so funny, until the guy that I was praying for started bawling. Because he said, you know, I haven't told anybody what Nate just prayed. I've been keeping it to myself. I'm too ashamed of it. But I've been going through this. I need help. And it broke something in him because all of a sudden. So here was this thing, like, okay. There, there is this thing. I wasn't even conscious. My mind is off in la-la land, you know, dreaming about who knows what, snowboarding on the mountains there in Colorado or something. But my spirit is still abiding with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was like, dude, I can use you. We can do this either consciously or unconscious. doesn't really matter. But will you let me use you, right? And so there is this thing within us that we can abide in the presence of God, even, even in the midst of everything else going on around us. And how do we do that? Well, I would just say a couple of quick things. We don't have that much time tonight for, for all this. But one, just have an attitude of worship in your life. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably have begun to feel this in, in worship. And I'm not just saying singing songs, although that helps us. But there is something deeper than just our minds being stimulated or our hearts being stirred. But there is something deeper and yeah, it's ca- it's, it causes our minds to be stimulated and our hearts to be stirred, but it's a react- those are reactions to something that's happening deeper. There's something truer that our, the, the spiritual part of us is beginning to commune with the divine, that we are beginning to connect with him in a way that we didn't even know was even possible. And yeah, we start to respond in the emotion of it, but there's something deeper, truer about us that's beginning to connect to God. 
And press into that. Press into worship on a regular basis. Not just singing songs, but authentically pressing into worship in your spirit. If you don't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, always, you know, lots of questions about that, and I get that. I'm happy to always talk about that. But, but look at Acts chapter 8. A group of people who had accepted Jesus, accepted him, had even been baptized by him, or in his name and accepted it authentically. But Peter and John showed up and said, hey, do you have the Holy Spirit? So they said, no, we just accepted Jesus. And they said, okay, well, let's give you that too. Like there is, there's more. At the very least, understand there is more than you understand, more than you've ever experienced of God. And you will you press into that. All right, so abiding in Jesus' love with our minds. Now this is where we often go when we think about what does it mean to abide in his love. But do you abide in his character? Do you abide in his character? Do you abide in, does your mind go into the attributes of God, the wonder of God, into the worship of God through the understanding of the immensity of who he is? Do you think about him, study his character, grow in your understanding of the one you love? Sometimes we say you'll be tomorrow where your thoughts about God have taken you today. A.W. Tozer would say it this way in his book. It's a really good book, on kind of introductory book on the character traits of God. It's called the knowledge of the holy. But A.W. Tozer would say this kind of in the intro of his book. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So you guys get what he's saying? He's like, hey, your thoughts about God will, will dictate everything. Everything. If, you go into, if you're going into, like, you know, challenges in your life, and you don't believe that God is bigger than the problems in your life, that is going to forever direct your destiny. If you do believe that he's big enough, and you can give it to him, and you can trust him with it, that will forever change your destiny. What you believe about God, what you think about God, how you think about God. And let me tell you, it's not enough just to be like, oh yeah, I know that, but, but is, do you have a thought life that actually is worth anything? Is your thought life worth anything? If, if in your subconscious all you think about is like, oh, that, you know, that, I don't know, silly, you know, that silly Instagram post, nobody, post, nobody likes it. They don't like me, right? Like, like, are you filled? Are you filled with like, you know, oh, that girl smiled at me. Oh, that's great. That's fine. Don't read too much into it. Ask her out and find out. That's my words. Yeah. <laughs> Girls say amen. All right, but, but. Do, do you, does your thought life, does your thought life go to God? Does it go, do you think about it? Do you feel the wonder of him? It's so easy to desire him when we, when we have thoughts that are worthy of him. But if we don't have thoughts that are worthy of him, you know, it's interesting in our culture right now, you guys have so much access. I mean, a few clicks on your phone and you can, you can pull up the five greatest preachers in modern history. You can listen to them anytime. In fact, it, it's really horrible being a, a preacher these days because it's like, you know, back before all this, you're like, oh, yeah, Nate, Nate's pretty good. You know, now it's like, yeah, I was listening to Keller a little bit ago. I was like, yeah, Nate's, a, yeah, 
Yeah. You know, so, but you can just, you got so much access to so many. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the validation there. But, but you, you guys, you know, you have so many things. I mean, guys are like, you know, I know a lot of my guys are like pulling up, you know, Bible Project and like these short commentaries. They're just like video oriented and real short and real easy to, like, you have so much access to so many resources at, the, at your fingertips. And yet they have, what the research is telling us is basically this is the most biblically illiterate church generation in history, at least in our country, if not in in many ways, church. I mean, I, I could show you studies of like what happened during USSR, Russia, when you, you couldn't even get Bibles. They were more biblically literate than we are. But, but here we are because we have so much access, but, and yet we are not filling our minds with God. So real simple, how do you solve that? Well, read. And I don't care if it's like audiobooks, you know, I, I got Caleb over here is doing a good job. He's reading this Bible while he goes to work in Greeley, right? Yeah, Andrew right next to him works, you know, early mornings over there at, at uh, Costco. And so, I mean, I think he's read more books in the last month than I did in the last, you know, three or four months because he's just like going through books like crazy. So I don't, I don't care if it's audio. I don't care if it's a podcast. I don't care. Like the point is, are you filling your mind in a way that you can fill it with thoughts that elevate God in your heart? Do you fill your mind with that? And people, you know, the, the response people always give me is like, I'm not a reader. <laughs> Said every person in history. Ever. See, here's the problem. This generation thinks reading, they, they attribute it to like a state. Like, oh, I, am, I, I wasn't born that way. Like I, like, like, I was born, you know, I don't know. So the, here's the thing. This is like saying, this is like saying, oh, I, I'm, not, I'm not healthy, as if that's an excuse for not going to the gym. Oh, I'm just not a healthy person. Well, then go work out. Eat some greens. I don't care. But here's the thing. When you go to the gym, no one in history ever was born saying, oh, man, I got to pump some iron. Like, no kid says that. Nobody grows up that way. Why do you go, why do you work out? Why do you work out? Because you want to be on the team. You want to be on the, you want to be on the sports team, right? Or, or you, want, you want that girl in that class to pay a little more attention to you, or you know, whatever. But you, you go, you work out. Nobody loves going to the gym. Now, you might eventually, you might eventually, there is a thing that happens eventually. If you start, you start to love something for its own sake, eventually, if you do it long enough. But at first, no, you do it for what it gives you. Nobody ever said, oh, I just love to read, until they read enough that they fell in love with what reading was giving them. Do you read in such a way that you're, you love, whether or not you love reading, do you love the thought life that you have and the way that it elevates the validation of who you are because of who God is and what you've learned about him? Do you grow in that? Right? So let, let your thought life grow. In whatever way you express that, listen to a podcast as you go to class, read a book in between the 10 minutes between your two classes. I don't care. But, but consistently fill your mind with God. The other thing is, of course, share it with your community. If your small group doesn't have, you know, if your small group community, when you get together, if they're, you know, if it's just kind of lame, it's probably because your thought life is lame. Right? Like, <laughs> wow, Nate. Midterms, man, come on. I'm like, I'm dying here. I get it. 
But, but here's the thing, like, if your thought life, I remember Dylan Austin, when he was yeah. on staff, now he's, him and his wife had gone and pioneered the Chi Alpha in Pueblo, but I remember when he was here, he got here and he started like, man, I need to read more. Like, these guys are always reading, they've got these thoughts because of their thought life. It's like, you know, I think one of the guys was asking me, like, how do you have the thought life you have? I'm like, I just read people that are way smarter than me on a regular basis, and it makes me seem smart. Right, because, because uh, you know, but, but Dylan started reading. He started reading these people. And all of a sudden, he's like, I don't have to think about how to bring Jesus up. He's like, I don't even have to think about it. It just comes out of me. Why? Because that's my thought life. My, my mind is there all the time. Because I've been filling my mind. I've been abiding in his love. I've been abiding in my mind. I've been loving him with my mind. And because I've been loving him with my mind, yeah, it's easy. I just find reasons. I don't have to th- I have a plan. I don't have to think. I just have a conversation and Jesus comes up because I'm loving I'm in my abiding with him. And so let, let the community challenge, encourage, stretch you, grow you. All right, lastly here, abiding in Jesus' love with our strength. Do you abide in friendship with your king? And I think I may have, yeah, so I, I changed that. Do you abide in friendship with your king? Emma, I'm sorry. Everybody give Emma a hand. She is... <laughs> Always doing the slides so I, you guys can semi-follow what I'm saying. But, what's that? Oh, well. No, no, oh, she's with my children. Okay, then that's fine. That's, all right. If you read verse 10 with me, go through verse 10 and go through this again. If you keep my commands, Jesus said, you, are, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Let me tell you, that sounds manipulative. You know, who would, who would, you know, who would you talk to and they're like, hey, if you just do what I say, you could be my friend. That sounds manipulative. What is Jesus saying there? What he's saying is, actually, before we can get to the friendship thing, you need to realize first that I am God and you are not. I am a king and you are not. That, that, yes, we're friends, but that friendship is not, hey, we're peers. That friendship is something from the hierarchy of authority. That, that Jesus says, hey, this isn't just something that like, I'm demanding of you. I'm doing it too. My father, I'm obeying him. I'm following him. And there's health, there's wisdom in our world. You know, our world, it doesn't like the idea of like, submission, surrender, because our world is so full of so much abuse that we don't, we don't think it's healthy. It's, it's the abuse that's unhealthy, but, but we say it this way sometimes, like it's healthy to bow. It's healthy to submit, to surrender to, to each other, to, to certainly bow to a good God who loves you. And it's healthy to bow in authority. And so Jesus is like, hey, I submit to my Father, and I'm telling you, you need, to, you need to submit. If we're going to have this relationship, you need to first recognize that a hierarchy does exist. You know, a soldier, if they're, if they're just following their, the commands and they're like listening to their commander, they may not even know their commander, but they're abiding in their, in their commander, in their commander's authority. Just by their obedience, just by manning their post, that soldier is, is abiding in their commander's authority. And so here's Jesus. Like, first, you need to recognize you can abide just by your obedience. But here's, here's the thing. He goes on in verse 11. Have, I have told you that this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Like, hey, I do, I'm doing this for your sake. I'm doing this for you. That your joy might be complete. That joy, that extravagant purpose, it's going to be found in 
this obedience. And so it's for that sake that I'm calling you. But then in verse 12, my command is this. So what is this command? If we're commanded, we need to obey. If we're commanded by our commander, obey. What is it that we're commanded? Well, he said this, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. Verse 12. And so what we're being commanded to is like love, the thing that we should aspirationally want to do. And Jesus said when he talked about the greatest commandment, he said, yeah, there's a lot of commands, but they all are built on this. Love God and love your neighbor. All of the commands, all the laws, all the prophets, all these things, they're all built on that command. The command is to love. We can't have relationship if there isn't a two-way street. We sometimes will say it this way, rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Right? If I just obey the rules because they're the rules, but there's no relationship, there's no tether, there's no connection, then it often builds bitterness, frustration, anger in our hearts, and we resent that authority, that responsibility. I see that sometimes even with just in ministry and in life. Like rules without relationship, they often will lead to rebellion, but also every relationship has rules. Every relationship has rules to it. Like Jesus is saying, hey, all the laws, all the prophets, they're built on this idea. If you want to love me, here's how to do it. I'm teaching you how to do it. I'm teaching you how to do the thing that you want to do. If you want to love me, right? If you want to be friends with me, then there's certain things. Come to my house. Spend time with me. Don't steal from me, right? There's, I don't know, there's, don't lie to me. Don't be, why? Because these are just rules of relationship. If you break them, you're breaking the relationship. When the father at the end of the life with the prodigal, he says, my son was dead, but now is alive. He was like, dead? He wasn't dead in the story. He never died in the story. What is he saying? He said, well, he was dead to me. And that wasn't like a harsh, like, justice kind of thing. It was just saying he, was, he rejected relationship with me. That relationship was dead. There was no relationship there. He rejected it. And if we're going to follow after God, then yeah, there are rules. But those rules are based on loving a loving God, to love a loving God. And he's saying, hey, you don't even know how to love me unless I help you. Let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me grow you. All right. But then lastly in that, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And he goes on about the fruit. And so sacrifice, sacrifice is the way to abide. If we're going to abide in our strength, it's a, it's a calling to sacrifice. It's a calling for us to sacrifice to our father, to sacrifice for one another. He says... Greater love has no man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. Not hierarchy. He said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. He, said, he didn't say, hey, no greater love hath no man than he laid down his life for his servants. See, that's an organizational hierarchy purpose. But he said, I'm calling you friends. I'm inviting you into relationship with me. And that relationship, that tether, that friendship, that to love, to die for you, for you as my friend, that, there's no greater thing because that is a relational agenda. And he's saying, my, my love for you is calling me to the cross. I'm going to die for you. 
It says, serve each other that way. Sacrifice for each other that way. If you want the joy of the Lord, learn to sacrifice. We say this way sometimes, love is unselfishly choosing for the highest good of another. It's looking at someone else and saying, how can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I minister to you? How can I express love to you? That, that it is a sacrificial love. It is a statement. I, if, I'm not, if I'm not sacrificing to express love, then in many ways it is not the love of Christ yet that I'm abiding in. That there is a calling to die to myself. But through it, life on the other side. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm not calling you to do anything I haven't already done. I'm calling you to die. As he said one time, he said, those who lose their life will gain it. Those who gain their life will lose it. He said, take up your cross another time. Take up your cross and follow me. And the imagery that he's actually using is one of a centurion. He's literally saying, I'm the centurion, and you're the one commissioned to die. And if you would follow me, I'm not even going to command you, but if you would follow me, I will take you to your place of death. But on the other end is new life. On the other end is life. Because you're going to have to die to all the things that you abide in, all those other things that you look to, all the other places for your validation. I'm going to fight those. I'm going to fight against those. But if you would abide in me like a vine to the branch, if you would abide in me, I will graft you into my life, and you will find life abundant in him. And yeah, all those other things that are good things, they'll find their true expression. They'll no longer be your slave masters demanding things of you and, and controlling you to try to find a sense of validation through them. You'll begin to enjoy them for their own sake because you'll have the freedom in your love for Jesus. To abide in him expresses joy in everything else as an expression of that love, of that abiding. So, I know who I am because I learn who he is. I know who I am because I've learned who he is. And so if we as Christians, if we as people who are journeying, and I know people in here probably aren't even there yet, and that's okay. But if you're at that place saying, God, I want to abide with you, then, then there is a challenge, there's a charge. Like, hey, Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is something that is full of joy and peace, and purpose. But he says, you can't do this without me. So if you abide in my love, if you abide in all of your strength, in your mind, filling your hope and your desires, your heart with that expression of wonder by what your mind is learning and growing, and that you would express through that a strength and a grittiness and a resilience to give, to fight for those things in this world. We have to say responsibility is like miracle girl for people's faith, because in it I say, man, it's not about me anymore. In responsibility, I say, man, it's in, it's in service to my God. It's in sacrifice for each other that I find that my life is no longer the central theme of my world. And when my life ceases to be the central theme of my world, I find life because I stop putting myself at the center and I put Christ there. And nothing does that more than learning to fight for other people, fight for God's kingdom in this world, fight for our friends, to love him, to find abiding love in him as well. And so as we learn to take responsibility in our faith, we actually find that by dying to ourselves, we find the life that we always meant to live in our faith. And so tonight we're just going to spend a little bit of time 
Uh, we got a little bit of time here. We're just going to have you guys break up. And if you're in your small group, uh, if you've got your small group members here, get together with them, even if it's just one-on-one, or if you don't have any small group cohorts, or if you're just kind of here, a girlfriend dragged you here and you're not really sure what's going on, that's okay. Just get together with whoever's around you. Um, but I just want you to ask, I just want to ask you kind of two questions here. And one is, is it easier for you to abide in your heart, your soul, your mind, or your strength? Like, what's easier for you? There's, there's, you know, everybody's going to have certain things that are like, hey, this is like my go-to. This is how I know how to abide. And maybe some areas where I don't know as well. But where are you wanting to grow in abiding? And how can you help each other? How can you help each other? You know, we say in our ministry, we say like, we are not a ministry with small groups. We are a ministry of small groups. And we get together in, in this community because there is something healthy when small groups come together in the larger community of, of Christ, in the larger community identity to express these things. But small group also, if you have history with the church, a small group to us is not a weekly meeting. Small group has a weekly meeting, but that's like saying like, oh, I'm married because I have a date night. It's like, no, you're not married because you have a date night. Date night is just helpful for marriage. It's something different. There is a relational purpose. And Small group to us, if you're getting, you know, a freshman, you know, new in this, like small group to us is this community of people that are learning to lean on each other as they're pursuing after Jesus. And so as we just have a little bit of time and just get together with whoever brought you or whoever you're at, but just spend a few minutes. I just want you guys to ask kind of those questions, like how, how do we help each other? What, what do we do to serve each other, to sacrifice for another, and in that to find the joy of Christ? As Jesus went to the cross, Paul would say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But how do we fill our minds with Jesus? How do we fill our hearts with the joy of it? How do we fill our spirits with that abiding presence? And how do we fill our strength with the sacrifice to see it all through? So just take a few minutes, and then I'll come back, and we'll, we'll pray as close here in just a few minutes. So go ahead and break up. Move your chairs. Do whatever you want to do. So, Lord, we love you, and we're learning to love you. And thank you, Lord, that you are a God who first loved us, and your love is transforming us even now. Help us to abide in your love. Help us to abide in that place with you. Because, Lord, in our world, we need your validation. We need your, your truth. We need to be showered with our identity being wrapped up, being created as you at the center. You are the vine. And Lord, help us to abide in that place, to reside in that place with you. That we might find life and find it abundant. We love you, Jesus, because you're worthy and you're worth it. Amen.